0: This is Joseph Clare, and you're listening to George Fox Talks Theology. Welcome everyone to George Fox Talks Theology, your host Joseph Clare. We're back, really special, special edition today with our guest Stephen Garber, author of The Fabric of Faithfulness, among other classics visions of vocation seamless life and it's just great to have you at george fox thank you for being here
1: it's a gift to be with you again joseph
0: yeah Mm -hmm. real gift and travis Bikel, brand new faculty member teacher of ethics here at the university also a friend of stephen garber from ages past and just here to have a conversation about a theology of vocation so as the listener knows our our topics here always are the, the implicit or explicit theology of everything in life, yeah. including vocation, and yeah. we'll make a foray into character and higher ed as we weave through, but I want to begin with this big cultural phenomenon called the great resignation that I know both of you have heard about, which has been hitting colleges and universities even more Um significantly it's called the great disillusionment even in higher ed just this huge shifting that's going on in terms of work and life and people changing millions of people quitting leaving jobs taking other ones and i just wonder either of you can jump on this um what does that tell us about vocation and the human heart this this phenomenon of Of quitting and seeking new employment. In fact, Travis, you're new to George Fox. So maybe you're like the test case for Mm -hmm. what's what what has the pandemic done to us? What's been happening in the past 18 months, two years that's led to this great reshuffling of of work in America? What would you say? I know it's a big question.
2: Hmm. Hmm. Yeah. Well, I mean, I just to begin with my own experience, it feels like one of the things that I'm thinking about when you say what does it mean for vocation? It means that Vocation is always sort of live and never quite settled, you know, for any of us. And mm-hmm. that there's this responsive element, at least for Christians who believe that there's a, a caller and um, and that it continues on and can form and and shift and change. And you know, in my own case, I was, you know, I would have considered myself quite happy where I was at. You know, it wasn't a disillusionment mm-hmm. exactly. So, you know, the the, the great disillusionment, um, I think. Sort of, to me, that's the engine mm-hmm. that sort of started things, but then there's all the side effects, which mm-hmm. is as people move from one place to another, there's a chain reaction, mm-hmm. and then there's you know people moving, and you yeah. have to be willing to move, you have to be willing to change. so in, in that sense, you you might not be quite settled if you're going to do that, but um, so there's yeah, the material conditions, I think are, are yeah. part of what's sort of on my mind there, but but that doesn't explain why it started. Yeah, You know, and right. why it kicked off. Yeah. I don't know if you have talk about that, Yeah, the material that, Steve, conditions but. are,
0: I mean, there's some basic things. Everyone worked from, a lot of people who had the luxury worked from home for a significant mm-hmm. chunk of time. Yeah. You start thinking differently about your interaction with your spouse and your kids and your commute. and. But I think there's, there's heart considerations underneath. I don't know, Stephen, if you've thought about this big shuffling that's going on at what it says about our views of vocation.
1: I even had a note this morning from a long friend. Um, who asked something kind of like this, Joseph, uh, what, what I thought about people making ch- changes in their 50s. Mm. Um, and uh, on the one hand, I would say that vocation is is a, a very deep word for us. It's a very complex word for all of us. Um, and as Travis said, it's a word about response, responsiveness. It comes from the same you know, not surprisingly, Latin root, we get to the word vocal from, Mm, so mm -hmm. vocal cords. So something, someone saying something is the idea, Mm. you know, someone speaking, that's the idea of vocal and vox and vocation actually comes from that that Mm. ancient root. Um, So for, you know, people of theist, you know, convictions about reality, you know, we would say, well, there's somebody saying something, you know, it's a God in heaven speaking to us on earth. Mm. And, uh, But I would say that, you know, vocation for me is, it's a word which has to address the whole of life for a human being. Mm. And... uh so it's from the most personal of my relationships to the most public of my responsibilities, vocation's about that. And I would say the vocation, you know, I'm one of four boys in my family, the second of four boys. I thought we were all the same. We had different names. Mm. You know, till I got to be 16, 17 thinking, no, he's different than I am really, you know? And I got a little bit taller than he is, or he's smarter at me but than I am on these questions, or he's he can play basketball better than I can, or, you know, all those things. I began to think, we're different from each other, aren't we, actually? Mm. And, but it wasn't until I began to have children myself thinking, these are different children. I know where they came from, sheesh, mm-hmm. but they're different from each other. Mm. And you realize that from the very get-go we're different. Yep. And I would say vocation is a word that has to understand that mm-hmm. because it's really about, you know, what makes me me in, in the whole of history in the whole of the universe. Yeah. It sets me off as to, from anybody else ever, ever, ever really. Uh, and so the things that we began to think about and care about and mm. began to work at when we're three and four and five, I would say if you listen attentively, Carefully, you begin to see actually that there's a thread that you can follow through to twelve-year-olds and sixteen-year-olds mm. and twenty-three-year-olds and you know even to fifty-five and sixty-five-year-olds. Um, there are things that are true about us. Uh, mm. I would say that the longing in our lives, which just gets to, get back to your question, I think, is that we want to have some continuity over time with these, mm-hmm. with who I am and what I want to, what I think I'm about as a, as a person in the world. I think occupation is a related word, but not the same word. Mm-hmm. Because occupation accounts for particular moments along the way of my life. Yeah. So that I occupy these this set of responsibilities and relationships along the way mm. of my life. Yeah. I've not changed me, but I've stepped into a particular place and time with different relationships and responsibilities that I begin to take up and step into. I occupy mm-hmm. that along the way as my mm-hmm. vocation is deepening and unfolding over time. Right. Um, so you know, I think you're right about it. I mean, what, what's happened in the last two years? I think probably part of it is that there is a great, you know, psychic, you know, social economic, Mm. cultural change taking place. It could not not be that, really, you know, and surprising to all of us, we weren't expecting it, you know, two years ago, Mm. it was all sort of like, it is going on as it has gone on, you know? And then when you can't leave your house, you know, and you can't go to work and, you know, well, if that's for three days, it's one thing, Mm. but like when it begins to be not more than one week and then two Mm -hmm. weeks, then like, what, for six months, now for 18 months, sheesh, it begins to actually change how we think about ourselves in the world. And I think the mm-hmm. vocation question to me, it's three questions especially. It's who am I mm. and why am I? And then what am I going to do with my life? And I think that, you know, what's going on right now, you know, in some ways allows people, whether they sometimes they want that the freedom to, to think. Sometimes they're in some ways are forced into the question because mm-hmm. uh, I think that's a lot of what happens in this wounded world. People are actually forced into questions they weren't wanting to have to answer. Yep. But mm-hmm. I think that vocation has to be a word like that and that is being played out and the pushing and shoving is taking place in a way which probably we won't understand until 25 or 50 years from now.
0: Right. Yeah. And I, it does seem like they're the deep unsettling of this experience that sense of surprise no one anticipated march Mm -hmm, 13th 2020 i mean just truly like even the great guardians of the galaxy and the global (laughs) cosmopolitan economy no one saw you know march first, second week of march coming it does allow you to reassess your own heart and what you care about it's like kind of a hard reset we've Mm -hmm. all studied and love you know augustine of hippo who's a common thread on this Mm -hmm. on this podcast for those who are listening (laughs) But the sense that we're actually more than rational creatures, we're affective creatures driven by things that we care about and desire from the low goods of a cup of coffee to the exalted goods of Mm -hmm. spouse and friends and even God. And that it's by looking and assessing what you care about, what you love, what you desire, that you get the deepest window into a person's life. So this kind of hard reset that I think has happened Mm -hmm. has forced us to ask the question, does my occupation or my work or what takes a lot of my time and mental energy, especially in kind of white collar knowledge driven economy. Does that reflect that inner true kind of sense of personhood and personality Mm -hmm. and what I care about or is there a mismatch and is this the time to reevaluate? And I think often Mm -hmm. it happens in the forties or fifties kind of culturally as a midlife. Revaluation, but this has been almost like a global midlife crisis right. kind of feeling. And it has, it's right. coincided with my 40th and 41st <laughs> birthday. So perfect timing to be asking these questions. Uh, well. well,
2: Joseph, just to jump in there. I mean, one of the things that struck me early on, um, for those of us who are able to work from home, um, mm-hmm. was this, this weird disjunction that was both um, sort of hyper global and tech, you know, we're all Zoom is sort of right launching in and right. teams are changing and i know my my wife who's a nurse in a, a large healthcare system they made telehealth telehealth happen in a matter of weeks right. where for years it had been sort of on the agenda how do we figure this out And yeah. um, but at the same time my life became hyper local mm. and i was in my my neighborhood mm-hmm. and people were walking mm-hmm. and you saw mm-hmm. your neighbors and i totally was looking at my new backyard that had a big empty space that I wanted to cover up with a deck. And so I figured it out and built a deck and got my hands, you know, active. And it's just sort of like changed It's a hard reset in a lot of ways. But yeah. there's the the existential sort of space to mm-hmm. think about what life is what's important in life. But then also the the sort of material and technological yeah. advancement that I think has made a lot of the change possible. And so I th- I think those two totally. things together are just driving a yeah, I don't know when it'll end. I mean it's interesting to just watch it happen. For sure, and we'll
0: get to this as we weave through vocation into character and education, but it does seem to highlight the value of college education, liberal arts, humanities, those forms of study, which are at the heart of our search for meaning as human beings, reflecting on these questions like, who am I, why am I, what am I called to do in this world, Mm -hmm. both individually and more socially? And yet we've also seen the kind of shriveling and evisceration or at least, you know, transformation of those fields of study as higher ed has been going through a major change since 2008. And it's not yet clear what the 2020 change is going to mean. So I want to get to that. But just hang here for a minute on vocation. Calling sounds like a pretty high um, bar for work. Right. So I, I think of prophet Jeremiah, one of my favorite, you know, books in the Bible chapter one, he's called by God to be a prophet and he feels too young to do it. Right. Mm-hmm. Like that's the kind of thing that comes to mind when I hear Bocare or Boko, this calling. But when you're talking about pounding out the 17,000 emails I did this morning or whatever, as the middle manager, you know, an academic unit, which I love by the way, <laughs> Um, I, I sometimes I'm having a harder time. Okay, I'm called to do this. I know that in a shadowy kind of background sense of like the trajectory or thrust of my life, I hope is Godward and sort of divinely appointed. But it's hard to know if I was called to like this version of 17,000 emails this morning or not. <laughs> uh-huh. You have a quote in. The Fabric of Faithfulness, which I commend to our audience, the expanded edition came out in 2006, which was the 10th anniversary of the 1996 kind of landmark work on belief and behavior, integrity and coherence and meaning of life. But in the context of education, really college and university life has been very influential for many of us in Christian higher ed. We're now 15 years down the road from the 10th anniversary. So maybe you could write a 15th, mm. a 25th anniversary preface mm-hmm. for us this morning, uh, Stephen. But you say at the end of the preface in the 10 year anniversary edition that whether one's calling is to music or to the marketplace, to the academy or to the pulpit, to the gallery, to the construction site, to the city or to the plains and the mountains, these questions which you first asked on the pages of the book 10 years ago about meaning are there for each of us waiting for a response. Do I have a telos that is sufficient to meaningfully orient my praxis over the course of life? Do I have a telos that is sufficient to meaningfully orient my praxis over the course of life or in the language of the street and therefore a little more playful? Why do I get up in the morning could you help us understand those are big words telos and yeah. practice praxis why do I get up in the morning maybe sounds a little bit more relatable but how are you thinking
1: about that question now 15 years on yeah it's a good question Joseph I've been thinking about it a lot even the last few days coming to be with you I'm going to be with the faculty here at George Fox later mm-hmm. today and you know I was asked to step into this again and uh so this is you know historical and autobiographical and a little bit geographical i suppose too but my wife and i drove from virginia to colorado this summer and when we drive together we love to be together like that it's been a a gift to us but we choose a book to read to listen to along the way and and because the way i'm put together i'm always looking for something about where i'm going to be just how i've chosen to live Mm. my life and uh, if i'm going to jakarta i want to be indonesian if i'm going to you know, Nairobi, I want it to be African. If I'm going to Timbuktu, I want it to be Timbuktu, you know. If I'm going to Colorado, I want it to be about the West somehow. Mm-hmm. So we found a Pulitzer Prize-winning novel from the 1950s by A.B. Guthrie called The Way West. Mm. It's a story of the Oregon Trail, mm. interestingly. And so a group of pilgrims, their wagon tra- wagon trains. We move off from Kansas City and find a scout who leads them across the... Uh, Kansas, with the Cow River, and then up into Nebraska Territory, and mm. across Wyoming and all. What impressed me, and what maybe I think the question of Telos is about, is that they were going somewhere. They, they were driven to be somewhere they wanted to be. No mm. one had ever been there before. They'd heard about it. They thought it would be, you know, heaven on earth on some level. Mm. You know, you could grow anything in Oregon. They the promise was, you know, you just, you can look at, look out of the land and all of a sudden the crops would be there and they'd be flourishing and, right. you know, happy, 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 happy life for everybody, really. <laughs> um, well, it's an honest story. And I think that was what drew me into it. It's a, it's a very well told story about human beings living in the world and travels along the traveling of their life over those months, really. But. They did get to Oregon eventually. They had, a, they had a place they wanted to be, a place they wanted to go. Telos is that word. It's like, what's, where are you going? Mm-hmm. What, what is the aim here? W- what's this about? Uh, hmm. And for me, the question has been a question I've been asking for a long time, of course, um, looking at the 20 something years and realizing that when, you are in your, when you're 20, you're beginning to make a movement from being a kid to be an adult, Mm. you know? The word adolescence is not a a long word in the English language. It really came into being in the 20th century. Mm. So we don't really have that as an identifier over the centuries, but it's, Mm. we understand it's meaning today, but you're kind of moving from being 10 to 15 and then 20. And, you know, the study these days is why does adolescence being so prolonged, Mm. you know, in the 21st century? Um, We people seem to think, well, we're not quite an adult yet until we get to be 28 or 29 or 30 or something now. But for for most of how we use the word, the idea was that, you know, you were forming a sense of identity and purpose and mission in life. I'm gonna be, I'm going to do this. You know, I'm gonna be about this, you know? And, uh, but I think that, you know, there's, uh, and telos is that word. And so because I've been immersed in the world of higher education for a long time, I've was intrigued by why it is that some people who came into their twenties, uh, I would say had a deepened, clarified sense of telos, mm. of what's the point of my life? Where am I going with my life? Mm. Well, others, you know, stumbled over that mm. and just had a hard time figuring that question out, because um, what, what I began to realize, Joseph, was that there was a relationship necessarily between telos and praxis. Mm. And we never have to use those words because they're kind of highfalutin words, and I not insist upon them. But they are descriptive too, because telos is about what's the point. You know, I know George Fox is not this theological tradition, but you know, it, you know. Come, if you think about the Westminster Catechism, yeah. the first question is a question of telos. What's man's chief end? What's the end of, of human beings' life? Mm. What, what's this about, actually? Um, and uh, praxis, of course, is a word that's pretty close to the word practice. You know, it's how do I work work this out? So the question is about you know, when you say that these things matter most of all to you, well, the question in some ways that the 20 something years are about are is, are you gonna form habits of heart that form you into a kind of person that the things you say matter most to you are actually reflected in the way you live your life?
0: Mm, mm-hmm. That's it. Yeah. How do you think about this? As you're a college educator, you've heard what Steven just said. How do you think about this question of, do you, Travis, or do your students have a telos that's mm-hmm. sufficient you know, to meaningfully orient the, the praxis
2: of your life or their lives? Yeah. I mean, I was thinking about this as I, as I read through this book again this week and revisited it after 15 years mm-hmm. for me. Uh, incidentally, one of the things you say is you didn't interview anybody who hadn't been out for 15 years because they didn't have enough time to have those practices mm-hmm. be settled into um, sort of lifelong trajectory. Um, so it was fun for me to think about where I picked up some along the way Mm -hmm. and how they related to my sense of telos developing over time. Um, You know, at George Fox, I was thinking about how we're sort of staking a claim on the telos through our core curriculum, through organizing it around Jesus's command to love God, your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. And we're sort of saying, well, that's, you know, that's as good of a telos as any um, that we can, the best we can of think all. about. Best of all. <laughs> exactly. A <And, laughs> uh, big telos. Yeah, right. Mm. Um, and, you know, one of the things I've tried to do, and maybe not so successfully, but I want to keep trying to think about it, is, well, um, can you see or discern somebody's telos through the type of character that they've developed? Mm-hmm. And um, you talk in the book about the technocrat, you know, the one who has... Um, who lacks sort of conviction and, and direction, but who's has a lot of marketable skills, you say, Mm -hmm. and just sort of thinking about putting that in front of the student and saying, Hmm. would this be a desirable telos for you? Would this be a desirable praxis for your life? If not, what is it Mm -hmm. like? How do you dive deeper? And I think that that's one of the things I'm picking up from this conversation that I want to help sort of students wrestle with and, and see in new ways. Mm-hmm.
0: Um, uh, yep. Mm-hmm. There's a strong sense that higher education has been overwhelmed by the technocratic or the um, effective, efficient worker, you know, preparation mentality. Again, nothing against wanting to give students an occupation, you know, vocation sure. yeah, occupation yeah, relate to each other. It's a high bar and a high cost, especially, Uh, for some to make it through higher education. So how the intellectual work of learning relates to the vocate or the occupational work of career is important, but it seems like it's almost overshadowed this other moral and spiritual work of Who am I? Why am I? What am I going to do in Mm -hmm. light of that? And without that work, you find yourself adrift, there's a kind of meaninglessness that can haunt a nihilism, Mm -hmm. a lostness that can that can beleaguer you. And I guess back to the great resignation disillusionment there is this thought that you were sold a bill of goods in terms of what it meant to learn in order to become more skilled and effective and make money Mm -hmm. and at some point you know this is is a pretty common story in american lore of lit and film of you find yourself at this hollowed place that the telos gave way right at the key Mm -hmm. point at the Mm -hmm. critical point the thing that was the big aim gave out if it was a bigger boat, bigger house. I mean, Jesus sort of nailed this in three lines in the gospel. He's like the farmer who says to himself, I'm going to build bigger barns to house all the grain, you know, that's coming in. He didn't know he was going to die that night, huh. that his soul would be required. <laughs> of him. it's sort of like, oh, ouch. Mm-hmm. So I guess my question is, it sounds so simple. I mean, it's re- easy to rattle off the double commandments of love. Like, what's the chief end of a human being to love god with everything you have love your neighbors yourself there's three loves in there that's kind of it or the westminster to mm-hmm. to enjoy god glorify him how does that big telos relate to the little Teloy, I guess of occupation and wow. work. Does it, does it even matter? Are there some jobs that more align for you with that big Is mm-hmm. I, I guess that's the question mm-hmm. that I feel for my students. It's like they hear the big aim, but then they're still back. Like, yeah, but I kind of have to like get a job or do something mm-hmm. to pay back the loans or make my, my parents happy or whatever. So how did the, is it, are there two teloses
1: or like, how do you, how do you think of that question? Mm-hmm. It's a good question and we could talk for hours about it, Joseph, but, um, I, I think that, uh, I mean, none of us live all day long with the big telos, you know, <laughs> running through our hearts. <laughs> like, you know, am I answering the biggest Travis questions all, all day long yeah. with this? Speak for yourself. I, uh, yeah. Okay. Well, I'll take that as a, a humble, <laughs> you know, <laughs> insight, Travis. Yeah. Um, but, uh but I do think that, that human beings, as human beings, want something, want the lives to be about something mm-hmm. that matters more than eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow we die. Yeah, I mean, I was surprised. You know, Travis spent some years in Charlottesville, and the poet laureate of Charlottesville and Albemarle County is a guy named Dave Matthews. Mm. Uh, you know, the <laughs> contemporary singer-songwriter. Mm-hmm. He owns more land in that county than anybody else. Mm. Interestingly, born of you're listening to his music, and. Mm. Uh, but he, he resurrected that you know those those words from thousands of years ago. Mm. The song called "Trippin' Billies," mm. and uh, he asked the question. So why wouldn't you then just eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow we die? And it's fascinating to me that those are the words of the song because of all the words that could have been picked out in the Old and New Testaments um, that would have been remembered about the day the the days of those writers both Old Testament writers and New Testament writers pick out those words mm. to say this reflects this is being said out loud right now mm-hmm. in our time and place. So there's something deep in us as human beings, looking out of the landscape of our lives, at the, you know, our place in the universe, mm. and, you know, and concluding, you know, well, I don't know. Maybe there's nothing maybe there's nothing here that really is a, that is worth my life. Why not then just Eat, drink, be merry for tomorrow we die, mm. um, and I do think that you know that you know that what a school like George Fox is about, why, what is its reason for being? I mean, if it isn't. It isn't for some, in some honest sense, to address that. Mm that centuries-long, millennial-long resignation Mm. of despair. Mm. Well, I mean, is there something out of this tradition of the friends, you know, of the Christian tradition, which actually might speak to the deepest things we care about as human beings, Mm. things that actually might give coherent sense to who we want to be and who we ought to be in the world? Well, there's no reason to be a George Fox University in my mind, Mm. Um, so. That's it. I hope
0: we're making good on it. I want to turn to universities a minute and ask how we can make good on upholding the double task really to give students to telloy um, to aim for uh, something that I think we have to keep in mind is um, our age is consumed with a kind of vision of happiness, which is circumstantial. And pleasure driven, I would say. I mean, that's that Epicurean Ecclesiastes kind of insight of if life really is entirely material or mostly about material aims, then it's about a kind of maximization of pleasure and minimization of pain. And that's the best we can <laughs> do. In fact, that's, I mean, what is the more um, dominant moral philosophy today than utilitarianism or consequentialism? So something like that is not just on the popular Dave Matthews band level, but it's like what's taught in the elite universities in terms of how you would make moral judgments, maximize pleasure, minimize pain for the greatest number of people. That's what, that was the most dominant moral philosophy in the Ivy league, you know, we were there mm-hmm. studying. So the question that I think we have to turn to is if you're aiming for the big telos, if you're living a meaningful life, it's going to be as much or more about what's going on internally to you and who you are as a person and less about the circumstantial sort of like situations you find yourself mm-hmm. in. And There's a moral tradition of stoicism, which is not Christianity, which is almost like an extreme swing the other way for me, drink Mm -hmm. and be merry. It's like, it's only about what's going on in you. In Mm -hmm. fact, you can be enslaved and on the rack and be, you know, sort of joyous and happy. And Christianity has always thought that's too extreme and a denial of the importance and goodness of the body and creation Mm -hmm. in the material world. But Christianity does stake its claim, saying it is about circumstances and what you do with your life and having a good job and a home and all these things are good things. And yet the really essential things are the things that can't be taken from you under any pandemic or any, uh, misfortune. It's your soul. It's what's mm-hmm. going on inside of you. Okay. So I guess the question is how does the formation of one's inner person or character relate to this pursuit of a meaningful telos in your mind?
2: Mm-hmm. Can I just add in on to yeah, that please. too? Because pile on, well, um, I'm glad you use the word soul there because often it would be self. Um, mm. And I'm just thinking about the way in which sort of the therapeutic mindset plays into this as well. Um, and so, you know, which is a, a very dominant kind of um, framework in our time. Yeah. and And important in its own way, but I think something different than what you're talking about. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, it's not about material well-being exactly, but about sort of. Some sort of existential or emotional well-being. Mm, mm-hmm. um, but how does that sort of also play in? or how may we distinguish what Joseph is talking about in terms of character from that? That's mm-hmm. a great add-on. These, I mean
1: these guys you guys are so good and I would love to just have hours talking with you about some of these things but you've used the word teloy a couple of times joseph and <laughs> just to
0: confuse our audience well, uh-huh. yeah the plural and, of telos uh-huh. i guess yeah
1: but you understand where the language what the language is and where the words come from and how the relation between hebrew and greek and Ar- aramaic where that how works out we're not going to get into that today here but <laughs> but the word telos interestingly actually has hebrew you know, when it's transliterated, and, mm. you know, it's offered into the Greek language, you know, it goes back to, you know, words which are sort of deep in the Hebrew mind, mm. you know, about what does it, it mean to be a human being, mm. you know. Uh, and uh, um, even the word shalom, you mm-hmm. know, there is an etymological connection between the word shalom in the Hebrew language and the word telos or teloi mm. in, the, in, the, in the Greek. Um, not because they're the same words, but people trying to account mm-hmm. for what it means to be a whole human being. What's what's what does the wholeness of a human being life look like? What what does it mean when somebody is right with God in the world, Mm. uh, essentially? Yeah. Um, And so, you know, so character, you know, is a word about that, of Mm. course. And uh, I found it to be helpful to think about the word character in relation to the word characteristically, Mm. because you know, the word character doesn't stand by itself, obviously, uh, in the way we think about life. but Characteristically begins to give us a window into what it's about, because it's talking about how do you think characteristically? How do you respond characteristically? How do you act characteristically? Mm. Uh, and uh, I watched the premiere showing of The Reluctant Convert last night, this mm. new film about C.S. Lewis's own conversion. And I had some friends who were involved in putting it together and so on to see it its first night. And I would say it's really worth worth seeing, mm-hmm. but you know, lots and lots to say about Lewis's life, but I think his, in those radio broadcast talks he gave, you know, after in World War II era, um, asked by the BBC, which was the only media in the world, basically, at the mm-hmm. time, there was nobody competing with the BBC, there was no other radio stations, no other, no TV wasn't invented yet. Mm-hmm. So it was really like, it was the show in town. Yeah. And the BBC said, would you talk about what you believe, as Lewis? Yeah. <clears throat> but it gets to one of the little booklets, that's you know, called Christian Behavior, and he does talk about character uh, in a, I would say, profoundly insightful way. He mm. uses the image of tennis and he says, you know, if you were a tennis player who once every 40 shots, you know, got the ball over the net, you might say, well, good for you, you know, but it would be <laughs> less than what you were hoping for, I might be. But somebody <laughs> who actually typically throws the ball up the arm and the shoulder move in a certain way, the racket's held in a certain way, the ball connects to the racket, and it's just in the right place, Mm. goes across the net in in a way which takes it just where it's supposed to be on the other side of the net. Mm. And Lewis says, well, you see, because eyes and muscles and nerves have been so trained, the the ball goes where it's supposed to go most of the time, Mm. characteristically. Yeah. Um, and he says justice is like that, you know. He says the the virtue, he uses the language of virtue, but the virtue of justice, he says, you could be somebody who once every once in a while does the right thing mm. for somebody else, you know, off and on, you know, last week I did a just thing. Mm. He said that isn't the same thing as a just person because a just person characteristically does the right thing, mm. acts justly. Yeah, And to me, that's been very helpful to thinking about all this and uh, 'Cause of course it is that place where belief and behaviour meet quite profoundly within mm-hmm. who we are. Yeah. Since you use the word soul, I'll just, you know, give you a s- smile here together. But Pixar makes remarkable films. Mm. You know, and if you are the fathers of little people you realize that some ta- <laughs> somehow how, oh, you know. how did you guys figure out how to tell about a, a car that, you know, the five year old boys of the world want to see this film every day of their lives. Mm-hmm. You know. Um, you know, and uh It's just about a car that loses its way across the American Southwest. You know, and you want to see it again today? You saw it again yesterday, (laughs) you know? But you realize that it's really Wendell Berry for Mm five-year-olds, you know? Because it's a story about, you know, about the covenantal cosmos, I would argue, Mm -hmm. where people and place matter to who we are as human beings, matter Mm -hmm. for our our flourishing. And if we don't understand, you know, the relationship, the meaning meaning of people and place in life, you know, then we miss the point of life, really. Mm Uh, we we get the tell us wrong to put, come back to that word. Um, the film Soul, you know, more, the most recent film of Pixar. Mm. If you've not seen it, I mean, it's great. It's a great, yeah. great film, and yeah. in some ways, it's a great conversation to have with you guys here. Mm-hmm. You know, so what is it about about a guy who's always wanted to be a big, you know, jazz musician? Yeah, you know, and uh, you know, I won't ruin the story for people, but it's really a story about, you know, so what? What does it mean? What who do you really want to be in your life?
0: Mm-hmm.
1: You know, I think in some ways, that question is offered to him. Yeah, you know, in life and death and and all, um, and uh, and surprisingly, he realizes that you know, deepest within me, mm. the soul shaped human being that I am, I really want to do this with my life after all. Yeah, mm. and that's that. I guess that
0: movie um, has made me think about character and soul really as those elements of your life that are for their own sake in a way that transcend whatever other consequential goods might come your way whatever like material well-being mm-hmm. or social glory or recognition like it's it's that remainder of the true self that doesn't need the external validation of money or applause or likes on social media and that at the end of the day is what liberal education from its foundations was about mm-hmm. there's like parts of you as a human being that are just intrinsically worth developing and learning is is a part of of character formation in the tradition because it's got aims that um that are they're big they're big they connect to that big telos i would say they're part of the very like fabric of who you are as a creature it's good to know something about nature it's good to Mm -hmm. know something about music it's good to know as i've moved into this season i think of my own kind of great resignation, great disillusionment, that's not a forewarning of a job change for me, but I've been reflecting and I've been drawn back to things in my life um, that are like skills or habits or crafts that I let go of in the pursuit of kind of career and the aspiration of like the big occupation of my life. And for me, it's been writing poetry. Hmm and playing a guitar, bluegrass and folk guitar. And I had two experiences that felt um, as religiously significant as any church mm-hmm. service I've been to in a long time. One was going to a guitar camp with my father this summer and mm. just immersing myself for three days in the craft of playing fingerstyle acoustic guitar, which my dad wow. in his retirement has returned to. And I had been just too busy, dad, to go with you. And, in that moment of being around beauty and excellence with Mm -hmm. these pros and these coaches and being there knowing I'm not on my way toward Nashville and a change of like that's Mm -hmm. not in the cards for me on this mortal journey I Mm -hmm. guarantee you and yet it's worth pursuing and doing it for the good of friendship with my father for the Mm -hmm. beauty it Mm -hmm. creates in the home and that sense, it was liberating to know yeah. that there was, and I think that that soul touches on that sense—the for its own sakeness of mm-hmm. life that is part of that essential, um, characteristically, uh, mm-hmm. you know, characteristic way that God has like intended and fashioned us as creatures. If that makes sense. It makes a lot of sense, actually. Yeah. Yeah. How does the second thing I forgot to mention is being part of a poetry group, but I won't go down that road. <laughs> horrible <laughs> at poetry. Not as horrible about. The guitar, but both are breathing a lot of life into my soul. How are you thinking about character? I mean, at Fox, George Fox, um, we make a promise to our our students that they won't just be formed intellectually and and vocationally or occupationally, but they will be formed in person and character. We have ways of doing that. One of the ways we do it in our core curriculum, this new thing called Cornerstone is having virtues associated with each of the courses. But how do you think more basically about the nature of character, Travis, as you're a big part of overseeing this now at the university?
2: Hmm. Well, I'm glad you brought up Shalom. I mean, I was thinking about this question earlier about the settled traits that contribute to Shalom, to contribute hmm. to flourishing um, over the long haul. And I was struck in, in the book and going back over it, um, Steve, that you made a a distinction between character and character traits where you draw on that distinction. Character traits are great. You know, I was thinking about how they all fit together within our our sort of program and our, our right. curriculum. Yep. Um, but when you're talking about whether somebody has character, you're talking about a sort of integrity and, and wholeness and how things fit together. And, mm-hmm. um, I think that that's, you know, the bigger question that, that we want to explore and think Mm -hmm. about sort of on a a broader sort of inside and outside the classroom and um, thinking about how things like exemplars play into that, Mm -hmm. how, how community plays into that. And I'm I'm new here. So I was I was really thinking this past week about, I need to know Mm. the community that the students are a part of better, like, I need to know Mm. what they're doing who they're hanging out with, how it intersects with sort of religious life on campus Mm. or doesn't, or, Mm -hmm. you know, what are the places that are actually really forming them outside of the classroom and how to, how do they sort of fit into this whole picture of not just character traits, but care having character Mm. and developing character. Um, so, so yeah, it's a, it's a big task, but you know, I I think we sort of, it's, it's one that simultaneously is sort of a giant calling because mm-hmm. it's so important because it's intrinsically important to each of us but on the other side it's one that i think you know we have to be sort of humble about mm-hmm. our role and just sort of open and and also rem- reminding ourselves of the the role of grace and god's action in this that there are things that will surprise us i mean mm-hmm. i can i can tell you i'm sure I don't want to put words in your mouth steve but when you met me i had something of a dilettante um, disposition i think and it was a it was a a matter of maturity and i was after after college but not not much after um but you know there's no sort of engineering getting beyond that it's sort Mm -hmm. of it's the circumstances of life have to have to show you and you you sort of you need the the tools Mm -hmm. When those times come to be able to put it together Mm -hmm. and and hopefully in a way that lasts. So, you know, we could be sowing seeds in, you know, college education that that, you know, flourish and grow 10 years down the line. We don't know. So it's it's a mystery, really. It is Wendell Berry's essay on
0: the university. And I think what are people for he's got that line about the irony of academic assessment. Mm -hmm. And this is Hunt to numerically, you know, sort of like name whether you're being effective in your in your work as educators. When he's like the real assessment will be it it'll be in the lives that are lived. And it might come out sideways and like one of your students' grandkids when they're 15, you know, mm-hmm. down the line and you'll yeah. never know anything about it, but mm-hmm. that was the real mm-hmm. fruit of mm-hmm. the mentorship and relationship and education that you offered to a student. And I mm-hmm. guess that how how do we Pump up our aspirations for formation um, in higher education, Steve, Um, this this dream of weaving beliefs and behavior together to give people a telos thick enough, you know, Mm -hmm. and meaningful enough to orient their praxis over the course of their life, especially in the conditions of modern and postmodern life but also be modest enough about what you can really achieve in a couple yeah. few years and having a few courses and mm-hmm. um, ha, inspire us, but also <laughs> make us realists, Steve, yeah. about our project here.
2: In whatever order you want to do in it. <laughs>
1: as I told you the other day, Joseph, looking at your curricular vision and how you've outlined what you want to be about as a school, I said, I wish I could be your student. So, there we'll is take a, you. So there is an honest <laughs> response to you there. I have for years been drawn to some of Iris Murdoch's thinking, mm, the mm-hmm. moral philosopher at Oxford University, yeah. and she has these words which kinda of got jumped out of my heart and have never left years ago. At crucial moments of choice, most of the business of choosing is already over. Mm-hmm.
0: Uh-huh.
1: And there's a lot more that can be said about the moral life. And I'm sitting next to an ethicist by training here mm-hmm. and you know, a moral theologian you know, across the table here. And so in some ways we could talk about this for hours and talk about lots of people who said a lot of things, but I think there's something about what she said there mm-hmm. that is profound, yeah. you know? At crucial moments of choice, most of the business of choosing is already over. Mm. And uh, so thinking about what George Fox University is about, you know it's in some ways as you said it's you you don't know what this next week's going to bring and like this year of studies will bring for us you know mm. but you are in some ways realizing that we're talking about a longer life here maybe generations of life actually yep. here that when you read this and it's got this consequence and and you don't know really where it's going to go and mm. and uh i was speaking this last week into a gathering of congressional staff and leaders in Washington DC and because i was where i was and you know what I was thinking about, um, I was asked to speak on the a question, making peace with proximate justice. Mm. And proximate justice, is, in my mind, is the recognition that we don't get everything, You know that it will be limited, uh, that with your, how smart you are, how ambitious you are, how gifted you are, how skillful you are at the whole thing, but at the end of the day, not everything will have happened. Mm. You know, Not all the good things you wanted to bring about will have happened because even with all the good work you, you were able to do in your life, mm. Now it's not for me, again, since we already mentioned Augustine here, it's profoundly Augustinian understanding of life in the world, because it is a recognition of the meta-narrative that shapes who we are and how we live in the world, how we see ourselves in the world. It, It realizes that it's a story from creation to consummation. Um, It's a story that does stop along the way with these Latin posse precaris and posse non precaris, you know, of of his understanding of history. Mm. Um, So it's a recognition that, you know, that if you're gonna actually stay with something, Mm. I was speaking against people with political vocations, but if you're gonna stay with a political vocation, not get burned out by it or spun out, you know, I tried that and you can't do it there, If you're gonna stick with it, you're going to have to, I argue, make peace with proximate justice. Mm. I drew upon, you know, an Oregonian to talk about this a little bit. Um, this was not thinking about you guys, just because his life has shaped my life. And you used the word exemplar, you know, a few minutes ago. But Mark Hatfield, who actually taught here later in his life after yep. he retired from the U.S. Yep. Senate. Um, you know, was somebody I put up on a, the screen to talk about for all of nice. these people. Um, I talked about being in his office, you know, early on in my time in Washington, 35 years ago, mm-hmm. and he was chief of staff. And this was his personal office on the in the Hart building, very beautiful corner office in the building there. And mm-hmm. I suppose the, the wall in his personal office might've been, I don't know, maybe 30 yards long or something like that. It was a big office with the whole wall, not by the window, but the whole wall inside Mm. was Lincoln, Abraham Lincoln. Mm. And uh, I mean, part of what I was saying to these people last weekend was, when you read Lincoln's work, you think so? How do you do this, Abraham Lincoln? I mean, like this was not speech hmm. written by a cadre of speechwriters. Hmm. Like you actually thought these thoughts, hmm. you know. When you read the second inaugural address, you think so. How did you put all this about God and history and providence and huh. right and wrong in the world and you know good and evil in, in history? I mean, here you are, somebody who actually had these thoughts yourself, hmm. and we're still reading them and pondering them night by night. When I I did last week, when he even just walked into the Lincoln Memorial, and just thought, you said this, didn't you? Hmm. You know. And then realizing that Hatfield saw him as intellectual political mentor. Mm. You know? mm. And so I had with me last weekend two books by Hatfield, uh, Between a Rock and a Hard Place, and <laughs> Conflict and Conscience. Mm. And I just said to these people, you know, can you imagine in the year 2021, anybody you work for, anybody you work alongside mm. who could write a book like this? Mm. You know, somebody who could be, in that language I put to them, as theologically mature as you're professionally competent. Mm. So somebody, you know, like Hatfield, who was, you know, a professor here in Oregon, Willamette, Mm. a dean, you know, the governor, becomes a senator for years, for decades, really, Mm. you know, called by, called St. Mark, by both those who thought the world of him and those who disdained him, Mm. you know. Why, because he took his faith so seriously, and not in a way which either, I mean, Washington, D.C., I would say, is full of people in the political world who either privatize faith or mm. politicize faith, mm. and neither serve God or serve the common good. Mm. You know, they're, they're terrible curses upon us, I, I would say. Mm. And Hatfield, in my mind, is what a rare story of somebody who stepped into the fray, political fray of the of his day. You know, I use this example, and I won't go into this at length here, but you know, of Hatfield being the lone Republican senator mm. in the Vietnam era who said no. Mm. And it was sort of like, it was seen as a traitorous moment. How could mm. you be this and do that, really? Mm. Uh, but I said, I also put up on the screen uh, the picture of Hatfield, but I said, I want you to notice that, tw- well, note that 25 years later, Robert McNamara, who was Secretary of Defense in those years, mm. ar- the architect of Vietnam in many ways, was a, in a 20-hour documentary summed up in about an hour and a half, a 20 hour of a conversation with a guy, and it's called The Fog of War. Mm. And... uh Essentially, McNamara says, well, we missed it, didn't we? Mm. You know, we, missed, we misread our moment in history. Mm. Uh, we didn't understand what was going on. Um, we weren't forthright with the American people about what was going on. We knew things we didn't talk about. You know, and 25 years later, we realized in fact that Vietnam was not what we, what we said it was in the 1960s and early 70s. Mm. Who saw that at the time? Mark Hatfield did, mm. you know? Not because he was wanting to be cantankerous, you know, or to, you know, with a reputation, but simply his own deeply principled political vision, as theologically mature as he was professionally competent, mm. you know, required of him to say, I can't go along with that, actually. I will not say yes to that. Mm. Uh, so in some ways, I think that, you know, you know we think, well, so who is Mark Hatfield again? Well, Iris Murdoch is right. At crucial moments of choice, mm. most of the business of choosing is already over. Why? Because of the habits of heart formed over time, a certain character that, in fact, thinks and acts characteristically. Yeah. It's like Lewis's tennis image. You know, yeah. you can do a just act, but it hasn't been a just person. Mm. And Hatfield was a just man,
0: right? In the the key moment, um, the the serve on the tennis court went right yeah. into the square because yeah. of the training. Yeah. How do we, how do we create a educational context that forms? another Mark
1: Hatfield. Yeah. I'd like to watch how this program unfolds over time, (laughs) Joseph and and Travis, because I think, I mean, I watch a lot of curriculums across the country and see people trying to imagine, you know, or reimagine why we exist as a school, Mm -hmm. you know. I just think, you know, what you've done, I mean, it hasn't happened yet, I don't think, but I think, you know, as an idea, as a formulation, as a plan, Mm -hmm. it's very rich, you know, uh, and, uh, um, I do think I me mean, choosing the virtue language that you've chosen, mm-hmm. again, I'm interested in words um, like you are, but virtue comes from the word ver, which is la- the Latin word for what's it mean to be a human being?
0: Mm-hmm.
1: You know, virile, we get to have the word mm-hmm. virile. Yeah, right. I mean, it's, you know, we think, well, what's viral mean? Well, it, mean, it means, you know, manly, I suppose, in one sense of the word, but actually the deeper sense is it's human being. What does it mean to be a person in the world? Yeah. So virtues point us to our own truest humanity. Mm. That's what they do. Um, so for you to think conceptually, you know, curricularly about you know who you want your students to be, mm. because in some ways your own theological anthropology is informed by what it is informed by, you think, well, these are the things that matter most to people mm. and to the polity you know, to the, to the larger life together. Yeah. Uh, and so that we want our students to, we're going to talk this language. We're going to create readings that, you know, shape us to think about these the, the, these ideas. We're going to, the, the testing somehow is going to be some way an assessment of, you know, not only, you know, do you grasp the idea, but, you know, given what I know about you guys, you know, it's going to be, but who are you becoming now mm-hmm. as you read these people, as you think about these things? Yeah. Um, you know, I, again, I, this isn't new to you to, because you have read what I've written, but I'm quite a student of Walker Percy's too, mm. you know, and I've never been able to get away from that you mm-hmm. know, damning, you know, you know mm. argument that we can get all A's and still flunk life.
0: Mm.
1: You know, so how, would, how do you avoid here, you know, intellectually mastering mm. the cornerstone curriculum? Mm-hmm. <laughs> right, <like laughs> um, but actually forming people yeah. who are who you want them to be. Right. Being clever, but being vicious.
0: I mean, even Aristotle yeah. saw this in a, in a pre-Christian pagan sense. I want to bring it in for a landing on this question of, um, calling as it relates to our ability to enter into and the suffering of others in love. Mm-hmm. So if you boiled like the whole vision, we have these 12 virtues, 12 courses, mm-hmm. the big telos of the double commandment of love, love for God, love for others love for yourself in a healthy way at the end of the day the proof would be in the pudding of this curriculum and that is as first john says how can you love this invisible god if you don't love concretely the brother the sister who's right in front of you and you say actually in your uh, preface to the newer edition that a question that's become core to your own calling steve is why is it in the face of situations that seem too complex too broken that human beings sometimes still choose to enter in, knowing that they will suffer, knowing that it will cost them, that for love's sake, they still choose responsibility. Mm -hmm. Are you thinking about that question now? And how do we form a generation um, Mm -hmm. that wants to choose to enter in? Mm -hmm.
1: It's a weighty question for me, you know, <laughs> and so these things I've written about, you know, in this book and other books, they never have ever, ever been sort of intellectually interesting to me on that sort of mm. simple sense. They've mm-hmm. always been existentially born questions mm-hmm. of thinking things which bother me, that weigh upon me, mm-hmm. that mm-hmm. I I get up in the morning thinking about, that I go to bed at night thinking about. So that question is really a question of my life mm-hmm. for the years of my life. Mm. Um, and... uh um, you know, I, I, I wrote a book after this one called Visions of Vocation, which has as its question, um, how can you know the world and still love the world? Because mm-hmm. I think that's the hardest of all the questions, actually. Mm. How do you have the eyes of your heart open to what's really going on in the world and still choose to care about it? Because, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, most of we think, well, okay, you know, I'm not going to. I'm not. That would cost me too much. Mm. You know, I will not do that. I tr- I used to be, when I was 20 and full of idealism, Maybe, but you know, I'm 30 now. I'm 45 now. Right. You can't do that, and I'm not going to. I'm not going to get hurt again by thinking things like that. Mm-hmm. You know, or you might. In the world of, because it's not just Washington D.C., but it's yeah. in some ways it's full of full of that as a city. But it's a place where people learn to play the game. You know, mm-hmm. and they think, well, okay, <clears throat> I came here with political visions and ideals and hopes, but mm. you know, <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not naive anymore. <laughs> mm-hmm. You know, I'm going to get mine because everyone else is getting theirs. Yeah. You know, yeah. and so how do you explain somebody who actually, you know, chooses differently, chooses to enter in, to yeah. step in, yeah. and knowing that it will cost them. Yeah. Um, I was doing, at had a, a Zoom conversation last Friday morning with a guy who's a financier in London. Mm. He's a very seriously Jewish man, uh, wears a little, you know, cap on his head and, you know, but he oversees like investments in hundreds of millions and billions, even to billions of dollars. Mm. He talked to me about wanting to move the marketplace in England, not just his own work, but from what he called contract to covenant. Mm. And that was in- intriguing to me. And he was reading actually the Visions of Vocation book last week and he said, can I talk mm. to you about this? Mm. And he said, you know, part of for me, because there's a whole chapter in it on the Hebrew way of knowing. Mm. And I was arguing in the chap- chapter about, you know, that the tree of the knowledge of good and evil Mysterious has always been to me in my life. Mm. Why, old Lord, did you name it that? Why couldn't it have been something <laughs> more simply understood? Um, but he said, I think what you've done, he, he's somebody who actually, every day immerses himself in the Torah. Mm. And I was listening to him, I was thinking, do I know Christians like this? Mm. You know, who are, who are so serious about their own text, biblical texts, mm. as he would see himself as an Orthodox Jew, who just immerses himself in serious reflection mm. on what the Torah teaches and sees it actually calling him as a man with, you know, many, many employees and much, much resource to mm-hmm. watch over to move the conversation from simply contractual to covenantal. Mm.
0: Um, How would you draw like a real clear, quick distinction
1: of a contractual versus a covenantal well, con- Contractual is like, you, you know, reality. you basically say, well, I want this done. You do this, I'll pay you this, and then we'll talk about, you know, if you did it or not, and mm-hmm. you know, and we're done. Right. You know. Covenantal actually says that I assume there's a relationship between us. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And that therefore, because there is, I'm responsible to you. Mm-hmm. I'm responsible for you. Um, so a marriage, you know, maybe there are certain contractual, but in some ways that puts it too simplistically and, and painfully, you know, right. hollow, I right. would say. I mean, the, the truest and best marriages are covenantal. Right. Because they assume the the necessary nexus of relationship and responsibility, mm. a responsibility born of love. Mm-hmm. So for me, the idea of entering into a world you know is broken and wounded, you know, and messy, 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 as it always is all mm-hmm. day long. Mm-hmm. You do so in some ways in imitation of Christ fundamentally. yeah, Because you know that's what he did, you know, and that we are called to be that in the world. Yeah. Um, you know, if I think back a little bit about to the history, what I know a tiny little bit of, of the Quaker, the Society of Friends. I mean, it was this, in some ways, a, a pushing back, a longing for something more than what the established religion of its own day, mm-hmm. Anglican England was in the 1600s. Mm-hmm. You know, and George Fox and others were saying, we want more than that, really. We mm-hmm. want something more lively, more important, more <laughs> that goes, that's, you know, has consequence for how we treat people in the world. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, um, so I think in some ways, there's a heritage that you draw upon here that is clearly that, and at the very best, of course, um, of, you know, Quakers, the more pantheistic Quakers of New England, and sure, the more, yeah. you know, other than that here in, in Newburgh, Oregon, and Malone, Ohio, you know, yeah, know. Yep. There is a, a sense of, mm. you know, that wherever the Quakers have gone, though, there is a sense of of neighborliness, of a sense of responsibility to our neighbor, to the world around us. So in some ways, I think that maybe is as deep a part of the tradition which brings you into being as anything, you know, but in some ways, it was interesting to me to have Mm. this Orthodox Jew last week who's this, you know, financier for all, for Mm. far beyond my world, um, just say, I think what you've done with this Genesis 1, 2, and 3 is right, Steve says so that's intriguing to me just to see what you how you've d- dug into this like this and because i'm not a hebrew scholar for a moment really you know but i was wrestling myself with how do you account for seeing the world mm-hmm. and still caring about the world
0: mm. that's it oh man it's a beautiful image uh, to finish on i think mm-hmm. as soon as a covenantal view of the world is what we're hungering for. And a marriage is a great example because as soon as you're talking about the financial and legal implications of the contract of marriage, you know, Mm -hmm. you're in a tough spot, right? I think you've already done. The threads have shown themselves. Whereas assuming relationship and the responsibilities born of love as the nature of human community, not just in marriage is the vision. And yet it's really hard to want to be assuming relationship when you've been burned or when yeah. you see how self-interested mm-hmm. and yeah. vicious the the machine actually is in finance or in government or in politics or in technology and yeah. social media. I mean, just this is this disillusioning element of human nature that Augustine, mm-hmm. that the Bible really has, but Augustine yeah. kind of sharpens. And I think the question for me that you've left us with is how do you be people who see but still enter in still follow the Philippians two way of Christ who enters descends mm-hmm. in fully engages in the incarnation, knowing what he's getting into yeah. and, and choosing to build a kind of covenantal bond in the face of brokenness and complexity and hurt where there's forgiveness and forgiving that must go on because it's that covenantal form of friendship that I actually think is, um, it's the deep calling. It's also a taste of the eternal life that I think Mm -hmm. we're hungering for, you know? I mean, that's Augustine's other insight is that the big telos of the double commandment of love for God and neighbor and self is actually a call to a kind of friendship that you're hungering for and that that's what eternity eternity is gonna be characterized by. So thank you. How do we form a generation of students who are theologically mature enough to understand that, uh, to see, but to enter in, um, and also to be professionally competent so they can make a difference as they enter in uh, to the fabric. It's a lot to think about. Really grateful for your time today, Stephen, for being Mm -hmm. here. Travis, for joining us. What a great conversation. Enjoyed it. Thank you. This has been a production of George Fox Digital. If you like what you're hearing, subscribe to the George Fox Talks podcast on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you stream things on your phone or computer. Check us out on the web at georgefox.edu talks, where we have videos, publications, and more. And we're also on YouTube at youtube.com slash georgefoxtalks.